0: Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again, everyone, and welcome. It's a delight to have all of you here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently flew to a college reunion. One of my pledge brothers came and picked me up in the Oklahoma City airport and flew me there in a six-seat single-engine plane. Some of you just cringed. My, my mom wasn't very excited about it. Neither my wife. The pilot's name, my pledge brother's name is Dusty, which is not exactly a name that creates a whole lot of confidence in a pilot. And he dropped out of college and rode around on a Harley for a year, grew a really big beard, even before beards were popular. That's all that Alyssa remembers about him. But he's very responsible now. Then, But now, very responsible. He's a great pilot. And we flew at 5,500 feet across Oklahoma. And I was able to see how dry it is, how dire the drought is. There's, there's almost no cattle herds. They've all been sold off. Hay bales don't dot the landscape. Creeks and rivers have dried up. Everything is brown. And it made me wonder about spiritual dryness and i wonder if some of you are like that even this morning if you know what it's like to be spiritually dry right now and are you doing anything to overcome it because that's a word that john uses multiple times here in our passage from first john chapter 4 and 5 in chapter 4 verse 4 he says you are from god and you have overcome them and by them he means this group that i've been telling you about a group from within the church that's left the church Denied the faith, and it was now trying to persuade others from within the church to leave also. You've overcome them. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, You have overcome the world. Our faith has overcome the world. And so I wonder this morning are we as Christians overcoming the world? Are you? And how do we do that? Well, two tests this morning there's a doctrinal test and a supernatural test. First, a doctrinal test. In the first verse of our passage here, we read, test the spirits. And I imagine that sounds somewhat odd to our ears, but we need to understand what he's saying because this is arguably John's main concern for these Christians, that they test the spirit. And his assumption is something that I talked about at baptism, something I've been talking about and trying to impress upon you all fall through this series, which is we live in a supernatural world, and therefore there are no spiritually neutral souls. There are also no spiritually neutral messages, and this church was hearing so many messages, so many supposed arguments of truth, and John is insistent that these messages that they were hearing weren't simply in error, but they were also owned and even driven by supernatural spiritual forces. That's why he says, test these spirits. That's why he also mentions the spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3 which is a a singular, powerful, spiritual being opposed to God and connected with other spiritual beings who are at work and influence in everything in our world. This this world, according to John, and the entire scriptures is enchanted. Is it for you? Is it enchanted or just simply flattened out in some sort of material space? C.S. Lewis thought it was enchanted as well. And to understand John and what he's saying, we have to get into a C.S. Lewis screw tape letters frame of mind. Are you familiar with the screw tape letters? This book by C.S. Lewis, which is a collection of imaginative letters written by one higher ranking devil to another lower ranking devil, whose responsibility is to keep one soul under his influence and his control. And so Screwtape, the higher ranking devil, counsels Wormwood, great names, with directives like this. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is, quote unquote, all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. That's a message that Wormwood was, that his subject was hearing in his day and age. It's a, it's a subject that and a message that we hear in our day and age. We hear, don't be too religious. Don't be weird about it. Don't take this stuff with God too far. Don't take him too seriously or believe everything that's taught in the scriptures. Just pick and choose, modify it. Take pieces that, that will make you happy and that will help you according to what you want. But, but the harder, more difficult things, excise those and move on from those. Make God an appendage, in other words, not the central part of your life. They heard that then and when Lewis was writing. We hear that today. And John wants us to understand that there are spirits actual spiritual forces behind messages like that. There are no spiritually neutral messages in this world. That's why we have to test them, test the spirits. So we have to think through them. We have to try to understand and even discern what's behind them. So when John says, don't believe every spirit, he's saying, don't believe everything that you hear, but subject what you hear to how it aligns with this. And this is the doctrinal test. In verse two, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's John's shorthand for the gospel. I mean, what he's, he's emphasizing here is what this church was denying, that Jesus was and is God in the flesh, human form. Not just some inspired, uniquely inspired and gifted man of God, certainly like that, but something so much more than Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., whomever you want to throw into that lot. That he was and is God in human form and an imaginable, unimaginable love and kindness actually died in his body that he had taken on. In order to take on every loss, every suffering, every form of pain and rejection and difficulty that you yourself have ever experienced, that anyone has experienced, that that is what he is emphasizing, that he died and then he was raised, having undergone the very worst of this world and what it can produce, and rose from it alive in order to share new life with you, even you. So how does what you're hearing align with that? That's what John is asking this church. It's what I'm asking you this morning. How does what you're hearing align with that? Whomever you're hearing it from and whatever it is, whether it's from your former spouse, your ex-husband, your ex-wife, who even though they left say things like, well, it was your fault that I left or the messages from your friends, supposed friends or the music that you listen to. It's a big music weekend here in Austin. What about the music? What messages or the news media that you tune into as all these different news outlets vilify the other, but exonerate themselves. And even our political candidates or the the media, the social media that we look to. And it tells us, this is how you have to look. This is how you have to present yourself or your parents or your professors or your lover who says, I'm all that you need in this life to be happy and to be satisfied. Every message has a doctrine behind it. And every person has doctrines they believe. They may be implicit. They may be informal. They may not be articulated, but they're there because we're doctrinal beings and our lives are determined by the doctrine that we believe. For example, because of my job, I have the oddest conversations in the most inopportune times. I've told you about a few of those conversations before. Here's another. Several years ago, I was watching homecoming pictures for one of my sons. There were dozens of parents there at a house, and all of us were gawking at our teenagers as they awkwardly side-hugged their dates, many of whom they just met in that moment. And one of the dads asked me while we're suffering through that, so how's the church? And I usually answer that in an innocuous, sort of obligatory way, but this guy had asked me this multiple times before, and I was in somewhat of a mood, and so I said this. I said, great. Church is going great. We've got lots of truly awful people who are coming. I mean, big-time sinners, terrible folks, adulterers, philanderers, addicts, abusers, prejudiced people, probably even racist people, business people who hoard their money, political type people who, who abuse their power and lots of hurting people too. Wives who have been abused. Wives who've been abandoned, children who've been ignored, immigrants who've been lied to and brought here. And then just turned out onto the streets and people who are dying, dying of heartbreak, dying of loss, but or truly dying, dying of disease and people who are suffering from mental illness. We have all sorts of people like that. All the right people are coming right now and you should come too. (laughs) And he said, well, I'm not religious really. I I just don't think that we can really know the answers to those big questions about God. I I really don't think that it matters what we believe about God. What matters is just how we live just how we live. And if we're good people, and, and I'm thankful that our kids are good kids and that they're living successful lives. And I said, I just couldn't help myself at this point. I just said, well, you're, you're more religious than you realize. That statement right there is a religious statement. You just said that you believe in a God that can't be known. You believe that he, it, or whatever is impersonal and distant, and that if he cares about anything, it's what your lives produce. It's how you look on the outside. It's the good that you might do, and that that if we're successful and nice and good, that that's what God cares about. And that's actually not only a very religious position, it's a very common religious position. It's very common in our society. Many people who are successful and achieved a lot like you hold that position. It's called moralism and deism. It's very common in America. Benjamin Franklin held it. Thomas Jefferson held it. It's very common. And most Americans are probably deists and moralists. They just don't name it and realize it. And he looked at me and he said, so who's your son's date? And that conversation was over. (laughs) But I wanted him to realize that we're both living by the doctrine we held. Everyone is. All of you are. And so again, how do the messages that you're listening to and living by align with Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Because that tells us that God isn't distant. And he's not impersonal. And he's not unknowable. That he came to us in our bodies, in a body just like ours, in order to reveal who he is very particularly and very clearly, and to die. Not for just you know the good people, but for all people, especially for the failures and for the worst of people, to forgive them and to rescue them, not just to pat the good and successful people on the back and give some sort of divine thumbs up, not at all. We all live doctrinal lives. And here's one more example. I know it's incredibly unpopular in secular high school settings and in college settings and in single settings to refrain from sex before marriage. I know it's very unpopular. Last week, I talked about sex and pornography quite a bit. I quoted Carl Truman, who I've been quoting throughout the fall, who says the pornification of our culture inevitably leads to the trivialization of sex. And I told you the opposite is true as well. The trivialization of sex inevitably leads to the pornification of culture. And somehow in our culture, we've done both. We've trivialized sex and we've elevated to something that it could never be, which is the meaning and purpose of life. If you wanna learn more about that, read Truman's book. But that, students and singles, folks, that is why you are made fun of by your peers for refraining from sex before marriage. That's why. And, and I know that you are. My, my own children and others, friends, parents tell me that a V-card, which is a new term for me, a V-card is now the modern equivalent to a scarlet letter. So if you're still a virgin or you're seeking to live a self-disciplined, chaste sexual life, you're the weird one and you're the outcast. The Hester Prince of the modern world are those who don't have the affairs. And your peers and your, your friends, they pressure you because they don't believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They have a different theology and doctrine of the body than we do. They do not believe that the body is so important and so good and so precious to God that he would take on a human body. Or they don't also believe that bodies are integral and intertwined with our souls. So that whatever we do in our bodies transacts and impinges upon our souls. And they don't believe that God died in a human body in order to redeem all things. They're all things spiritual, all things physical, our souls, but yes, also our bodies. It's an entirely different doctrine of the human body. And by the way, ours is better because it cherishes the body, cherishes your body in the way that theirs discards it. And by the way, they know it. They know it. That's why they pressure you so, so ardently because even though they hold that, idea about the body, the various ideas doctrinally, intuitively, they know that it's wrong. They know that it's doing damage. That's why they pressure you because they want the pain, the mistakes that they feel to be shared with other companions who will share their regrets and their mistakes. So do not join them. Test the spirits behind what they say. It says, this is how we overcome them. Whoever them is for us, whoever them is, And this is how we overcome the world. Chapter five, verse four. This is the victory that has overcome the world and all messages, all false prophets, all spiritual powers behind them. This is how we overcome the world, our faith, what we believe, what we particularly believe about who God is and what he's done and what he's like and about what the world is like. That's what leads us. That's what protects us. That's what transforms us and changes us and heals us and delivers us even from the screw tapes and the wormwoods of this world. So test The spirits. So, are you? Are you testing them? That's a doctrinal test. Secondly, there's also a supernatural test. And we find it in our second paragraph here as we begin chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, same doctrine, God come in the flesh, everyone who believes this has been born of God. And three different times, John speaks about being born of God here. And the last two sermons that I've preached, I, I emphasize this quite a bit and talking at length about being born again. And here we have to come back to it again because John comes back to it again and reading the book of first John is somewhat difficult. He's not nearly as linear in his writing and his thinking as the apostle Paul or others, but he's like, uh, have you ever thrown multiple stones into a pond? you ever done that? And then seen how the, the stones create ripples that ripple out, and eventually those ripples overlap and intertwine and mix with one another. That's like the book of 1 John. And there's a big stone that he throws at the very end of this letter, and it's being born of God, and it mixes and it intertwines with everything, and everything that he says and all the changes that he talks about are predicated upon this notion of being born of God, of being reborn by God the Holy Spirit coming, as he says, to live within you. It changes everything especially changes two things, and that is your relationship with God's people, number one, that's in chapter five, verse one, and and then verse two, and then also your relationship to God's commands, that's at the end of verse two in chapter five, and then all of verse three. So if our faith overcomes the world, that's the doctrinal test, then so too does our birth. So how does it change all these things? How does it change our relationship with other Christians? Chapter five, verse one, we read, everyone who loves the Father loves who? Those who've been born of him simply begs the question Do you love other Christians? Do do you love other people? Love them like I talked about last week. Love not as emotion, not primarily as a feeling, but as an action, as an act of service that that brings and offers life to them. In other words, are our relationships here in the church any different from those relationships outside the church in the world? Are our marriages any different? Are our relationships to our children any different? Is there anything different about us? Because our greatest apologetic to an unbelieving world is our relationships with each other. John is emphatic about that throughout his gospel and even here, according to John, that's how we know that the doctrine that we believe is true. And that is how we know that this birth that we speak about, this new birth is real. If it transforms our relationships with each other. Several weeks ago, I was struck while reading the book of Acts. The daily lectionary has had us in the book of Acts for quite a while now. And in Acts chapter nine, Stephen is martyred, the first martyr. He's martyred in Jerusalem and it scatters all the new Christians throughout the entire Mediterranean region. And in Acts chapter 11, we're told they fled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And when they went though, these Jewish Christians who spoke Hebrew were culturally Jewish. They only would talk about Jesus with other Hebrew speaking Jews until some men from Cyprus decided to go to Antioch. And there they began speaking and telling them about Jesus to Greek-speaking Jews. And It was the first time that the gospel crossed linguistic barriers and cultural barriers. And you know what happened in Antioch? Thousands and thousands of people were converted immediately, so much so that the apostles back in Jerusalem heard about it, and they sent Barnabas there to figure out what was going on. As soon as Barnabas showed up, more people became Christians, and then he couldn't handle all, so he went looking for this guy named Saul of Tarsus that he had heard about, who had become a Christian, who was, of course, going to become the apostle Paul and brought him back. And even more people believed and they stayed there for over a year. And what's interesting about Antioch is it was one of the most ethnically and racially diverse cities in all of the Roman empire. So much so that the Roman empire erected walls in between all the different sections of the city because they hated one another. There was a Jewish section, there was an African section, there was a Syrian section, there was a Greek section at least. And again, they despised one another like like squabbling children that in the backseat of the car, the parents have to separate. That's what they were like, all of them, until they heard about Jesus coming to flesh. And they experienced what John talks about as the new birth. And then everything changed in that city. And in Acts chapter 13, it lists off all the leaders of the church at Antioch. It says Barnabas was a leader a Hebrew speaking Jew from Jerusalem. And then also Paul, a Jewish man, not from Jerusalem. And then also Simeon, who was called Niger, which is a Latin word that means dark or black because he was an African. And then also Lucius from Cyrene. You know where Cyrene was? It was in modern day Libya. And so most likely a brown skinned man. And then Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, the scripture says. So he was a Roman and a man of privilege and power. And all of them were leaders in the church because that's who comprised the church, people like them. And guess where the term Christians originated? In Antioch. It was the first place that they called Christians Christians because they had never seen anything like this in all the world. Up until that point, various religions were all restricted by by tribe and by nation and by ethnicity. And here was something different. Here, it wasn't Judaism, but it was from Judaism. But Jews who believed in Jesus were now treating other people who were not Jews, but believed in Jesus differently, treating them like brothers and sisters, and they loved them. And if you read secular historians, they will say this is one of the main reasons why Christianity swept over the entire Roman empire because of the relationships between Christians who were nothing like one another. They had never seen anything in the world like it. Inexplicably different, supernaturally different. And what they said had to be true because their lives and relationships were so compelling. So what about us? Because we live in a modern day Antioch. Where new walls of division are constantly going up. So do we love Christians across the walls? They, they loved one another across the walls, literally and figuratively. Do we, if we do, if we do, it will not be in our power and strength. It will not be natural, it will not be worldly. It will be supernatural. But the second thing that this new birth changes is not only our relationship to other Christians, but our relationship with God's commandments. And so when he talks about the commandments here, yes, he means the 10 commandments, but he also means all of the biblical commandments, all of biblical morality and ethics that flow from them. So what do you see in chapter five, verse three, that John says for the Christian, God's word is not. Missy did a great job of reading it. She emphasized it. God's word is not what God's commandments are not what for the Christian burdensome. Do you believe that? God's commandments are not burdensome. What part of biblical morality is burdensome for you? It may have something to do with your sexuality, your sexual life. It may have something to do with forgiving that person that's wrong. You can never imagine stomach doing that. Or maybe it's about caring for the poor, or maybe about resting and not working so much, or making worship a priority over everything in your life, whether it's your kids, your kids' sports, vacations, whatever it may be or reaching out to that unpopular outcast person, even if it costs you friendships with other people. Or maybe it's about admitting you're wrong and asking for forgiveness from those that you have wrong. Whatever it may be, what is it? What's burdensome to you that God's word says and directs? Something. I went to see Zach Bryan in concert at Stubbs on Wednesday. Do y'all know Zach Bryan? Do you know who that is? Anybody? somewhat new, but he's this spectacular singer, songwriter, country artist with a remarkable story. He's from a tiny town in Oklahoma, God bless him for it, from Ulaga, Oklahoma. And he joined the Navy at 17 years old and started writing songs and uploading them to YouTube while he was still in the Navy. Then all of his Navy buddies paid for him to record his first album. And when I bought the tickets for this concert several months ago, they were only $60. And now on Wednesday night on StubHub before the concert, they were $600. He's had this meteoric rise to fame and success. And I don't know if he's a Christian, but there's plenty in his lyrics that are about the Lord, including his song, Revival. And he ended the concert on Wednesday with the song revival. And I've never seen a better closing song at any concert that I've gone to. It was a religious experience for so many people. I mean, it was like they were going to church there in the middle of stubs, which makes sense because the lyrics are quite religious. He sings this. He says, we're having an all night revival. Someone call the women and someone steal the Bibles for the sake of my survival. Baptize me in a bottle of beam and put Johnny on the vinyl. He goes on. Well, the devil can scrap, but the Lord has one, and I'll talk to him, the Lord, on the rising sun. His sun rose and mine did too. I was coming down, but now I'm talking to you because we're having an all-night revival. And that line, the Lord has one, but I'll talk to him on the rising sun, strikes me as so profound and so true and so representative of how we all too often approach our relationship with God and with his word. We say things like, yeah, we believe that the Lord is one. We believe Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We believe this good news. But then we say, there are things in this world right now that I want. There are things in this world right now that, that I need for my survival. Things that are more important. Things that are more satisfying, more desire, more life-giving than God's word. In fact, God's word is too burdensome. So for right now, someone call the women and someone steal the Bibles. Just get rid of them for now. And I'll, I'll deal with God later just too burdensome. And friends, what John is saying, what he's talking about, this new birth, being born again from God, from above changes all of that. God dwelling in your heart by the Holy Spirit makes his words, his commands, even not burdensome, but beautiful, beautiful and more satisfying than anything and anything beyond some sort of all night revival. Try me on that. Try me. Try John. Try believing and living as though God's word isn't burdensome and see if you find that it isn't and test the spirits. Do not believe everything that you hear in this world about where life and truth is found. Test the spirits, test them against the grace of God to you, the unimaginable grace and kindness and love of God for you and to you and trust that you've been given everything by him, everything necessary to not only endure this world, but to overcome this world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would impress upon us the beauties of your word, who you are, and that which you have done for us, and the life that you lay out in your word for your people, and that we would love your people, that we would love you, the Lord God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we know that this is possible in and through you alone. And so we pray that you would do it and that we would respond in faith and in thankfulness. We pray that even now in Jesus name. Amen.